Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. The 56th New York Film Festival continues through this weekend, with encore screenings recently added on Saturday and Sunday. Head to filmlink.org for tickets. Also continuing are our daily NYFF Live free talks, including a talk with Willem Dafoe just added on October 13th. One of the highlights so far was our discussion about the new film from Tamara Jenkins, Private Life, which was a main slate selection and is now streaming on Netflix. The film stars Paul Giamatti and Katherine Hahn as a middle-aged New York couple navigating the choice to become parents thanks to their egg donor niece, played by Kaylee Carter. For our NYFF Live talk, Tamara Jenkins and Kaylee Carter joined producer Anthony Bregman to discuss the process of working together on this New York City film. Let's go now to their conversation. So um, let's start with the journey of private life. Uh, you have spoken in other places too that this film comes from a deeply personal place for you. Um, so how did it? How did it start? What was the personal connection? Well, the personal connection was that my husband and I went through a whole fertility saga. Um, Not that I was taking notes at the time, thinking this is really great material for a movie. (laughs) Although I do think that there's a perverse part of any writer's kind of head where they, I always think that there's like a third eye and you can be in the middle, that you are weirdly taking notes even against your will somehow, but I wasn't actually doing it. Um, and then I, and I had a girlfriend who was encouraging me, who was my confidant sort of during that time. And uh, when I was telling her what was going on, you know, as a girlfriend, like uh, she said, you should write this stuff down. And once again, I said, I'm not, I'm, no. Uh, I'm not going to do that. This isn't that. And then years went by, and of course, here I am. So uh, I don't know when you know you give yourself permission. The moment that you, you know, it's almost like a permission-giving moment. Mm-hmm. Something happens where, and I, and a few things had conspired to make me write about it. One was um, I had I looked around a couple years later and discovered that there was a whole bevy of my friends were in their own fertility dramas. And so I realized that it wasn't just me and that it was a kind of epidemic among people that I knew. Um, And I was interested in writing about a marriage that was kind of like the foreground uh, interest. And uh, a middle-aged mutual midlife crisis kind of marriage. Mm And um, I realized that the fertility detail was almost like an externalization of a midlife crisis, that it actually became this great metaphor for that. And, you know, and it, anyway, so it, it became the subject of this movie. I, I remember you also mentioning um, this little anecdote of you and your husband going to see oh, yeah. Knocked Up in the theater. Yeah. Was okay. that also a true? No, that, no that's totally, yeah, it was true. It was while we were in the thick of our own thing. We were in upstate New York near Woodstock, and he was like injecting my ass 
and like peeling, I was peeling up estrogen patches and going in and out of the doctor's offices, I mean, in the city, but we were sort of taking a breather and we said, oh, let's go to the movies to like get our mind off of it. And the movie that was playing was Knocked Up. Was, that was the only movie that was anywhere near where we were. So we went in and we watched this couple like get drunk and fall into bed and um, get pregnant by accident by having sex, which we totally forgot was even part of the... Adoption. Like that that was even, oh, you can do that too. That's such an interesting idea. Um, and then when we, when we stumbled out of the theater, I said, oh my God, knocked up. What would ours be called? And I said, it would be called knocked out. And then, and I, but you know, it was like a joke, but right. it, I do think that it was like the first, that third eye weird, Ding. What would be the opposite of knocked up? And I was like, this. <laughs> um, so, you and Anthony, you guys have worked together on The Savages before, but that was over a decade ago. Um, so, I want to know if you two have been talking about this project at all. At, at what point did you come on board, or you spoke to Anthony about what you want to do next? First I of actually, all, please let's not remember, wait another 10, 10 years for the next movie. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> I actually remember harassing you outside of, outside of the Alice Tully Hall um, saying, where's this script that you said that you were writing? And you were like, oh, no, I know, I'm going to send it to you. I said, wait, really? Before yeah, all the Steph stuff? Before, you no, know, it was like we had, been, we had been talking to you about, like, oh, you're writing some script, and what is it? And I remember, and I remember, being outside of the New York Film Festival at one opening night four right years ago or something like that and, and running into you and saying, so where's this Definitely script? Definitely more than four years ago. And maybe it was more than four I, years I ago. I do love yeah, that. But I remember it. I remember. No, well, I mean, because he has a, well, it's, I mean, I think that it sort of started because Ant has um, another half of himself that is the producing team and her name is Steph Azpiazu. Mm -hmm. They're a double act. And she start, She would call me every six months over the course of 10 years and say, what are you up to? And, um, and she was sort of like, when you sort of think you've like, nobody even knows that you're alive anymore and that you'll never make a movie again, she would call up and say, you know what? I just saw The Savages on HBO and I just couldn't stop watching it. And but like, she was just always this very nice person that would check in with me and Anyway, she was checking in and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing something privately and um, very privately. And um, I rented an office and I really was like a totally, I wasn't, I, I, my husband and I actually had a child. After the, we had the child, we did some writing jobs together that were so ill-advised because we had become parents and then we were co-writers and it was just like, don't do it. <laughs> um, one of them is this movie that's out now, Juliet Naked. We did the first, like, first two drafts of that. And anyway, so we did a bunch of writing jobs that were really hard on the marriage because we also had a child. I don't know, it was exhausting. But as soon as that was over, as soon as we handed in our final draft of that script, I was like, I have to get, I have to get a room of my own. And as Virginia Woolf said, and I had to get it out of the house and I rented an office space on Christie mm -hmm. Street. That was really the beginning. That's the beginning of this movie, is my getting an office on Christie Street. And me sitting there and dropping my daughter off at school every day and going to the office, 
like banker's hours and writing, and drop her off, go back to the office, banker's hours, writing, then go home and make dinner. So that was the beginning, and that went on for a long time. And how long was that writing process, the just a script? Two years. But they started calling before the two-year mark was up. <laughs> but I do love that there is a New York Film Festival connection, that you remember the I, conversation I totally on one of those remember. opening In nights. In fact, I may have actually been on the phone with Stephanie, who, who, who you know, I've worked with for 18 years, 19 years, and who lives in California now. And, I think, and I'm on the phone with her eight times a day. Um, and I think I was probably on the phone with her as I was walking up to the screening to the, to, you know, outside of Alice Tully. And, and, uh, and I was like, oh, there's Tamara. And she probably said, ask her about the script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had to lure it out of me, Steph. Because she kept saying, I'd love to see it. I said, well, it's not finished. And it's just this thing. And I'm just doing this thing. And I just felt very private about it. And then she... It was very seductive, and then I said, okay, okay, I'll send you what I have, and at that point it was... 71 pages. 71 pages, and it was the first act. act. It was very long. I think it was right up until you showed up, but you, we didn't know you were there. It was 71 pages? Oh, it was really long. It was a 200-page first it draft. Was, it, was, it was 71 pages, and we're like, oh, that's great. And it's, no, and then the it's just like... Draft. It's the first act. And, and, you know, scripts are traditionally 100 to 120 pages, and they're three acts, so you can do the math. Where like the 71 pages of the first act, you say, okay, well, what, that, that, that's, that's a miniseries. Somehow, you, then you, I remember being kind of being stuck because your character showed up. I love how now you're, but you know, when I was writing before it was a three-dimensional human, but um, I remember kind of coming up to the, the Sadie idea and being really kind of frozen and scared about writing a 25-year-old and not wanting it to sound or be like a 25-year-old written by a 50-something-year-old. I was very like worried about it. Anyway. So how did then Kaylee came on board as Sadie? At at what point did you read the script and I really do think it's better when you tell the story. But <laughs> I I tell the it's first just part so and then you can go. Okay. I can say Let's tag when team. we were about to shoot the movie, we were three weeks out of shooting the movie, right? Yeah. Three weeks out, we had an actress that was signed up for that part and she had been attached to it for a while. We had Paul, we had Catherine, we had this actress, and then he, at the production office, walked into my little office space in the production office and he pulled the door shut behind him, which is very unusual, because the door's <laughs> usually flapping open and people are kind of coming in and out and there's this, and all of a sudden he just kind of walked in and he shut it and I was like, and you said, he, it was like, you, and you gave me the news, which was, she had dropped. She basically dropped out to do a big movie that was like a visual effects movie that sounded horrible in many respects. Except that they <laughs> were paying her. Except, yeah, except that they were paying her more than our entire budget of the movie <laughs> was. And so she dropped out. Right. So this person dropped out. Then we sat in the office and got, I got sick. <laughs> Had you talked? I thought to you were about to say drunk. No, I got we drunk. sat in the office no, and we got drunk. No, I didn't get drunk. But I, but you um, had. Did Netflix know at that moment when you told me? Yeah. I see. Yeah. We 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 had you know we 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 were working with Netflix, which had which kind of came in to the process because previously the the movie had been with another studio. And we were, you know, arguing with that other studio for a long time about the budget and how to make it and all sorts of things. And, and it kind of came to, to uh, 
a, a, a crossroads in that process when the studio basically said, we'll give you a certain amount of money to make it, but the, you can't, with that money, you can't shoot it in New York because it's just not enough money to shoot in New York. But you can, the good news is you can shoot it in Montreal. And, uh, um, and you know, for those of you who've seen the movie, it's, it, would, it would not be the same movie. And so Tamara basically said, well, I don't want to make that movie. And so we had just started talking with Netflix about some other movies. And so you know, we asked the movie back from, from this other studio. And they said, sure, take it. And, uh, and then we brought it to Netflix. And they read it. And they loved it. And they said, how much do you need? And we told them. And they said, great, we'll make it. And then we started making the movie, like, immediately. Yeah, it was freakishly fast. I thought that they were going to say, yeah, we want to make it, but you need to do this to it. You I need know. to, you know, change something in the script. You need to attach, you know, Marilyn Monroe as Molly's character. I don't know, some crazy demented thing, which did not happen. They said we could, you know, th that was great. But anyway, then yeah, meanwhile, then they, yeah, and and what happens usually when you know the the actress who was on before was a fairly namey person, as as you could tell by being offered millions and millions of dollars to do another movie, um, to do a visual effects movie, and so when when and so what normally happens in that situation with most financiers and studios is when your key piece of talent, as it's called, falls out. They, and you let them know that, the first thing they say is, shut it down, send us your bank statements as of 12 noon, and now you don't spend another penny, we're flying people over, we're gonna shut the whole thing down until you find someone else to replace that person who has, who's in, you know, with a, like someone else who has equal value. And, uh, um, and, when, and, and when I spoke to Netflix about it, they said, well, you know, we're in the movie for Tamara, and we're in the movie for I this cried. movie. And, uh, I really did. I was um, like, gosh. And, uh, and so keep going. Let's see who else is out there. Do you think three weeks you'll be able to find someone to replace her? <laughs> and we said, we'll, 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 we'll figure, you know, we'll start, we'll start reading people, and we'll start looking around. And they said, great, you know, if you feel like it's going to start, you know, hit, you know, causing a delay in production, let us know, because that would get expensive. And so, so when I went in to talk with Tamara, I had that, so I was that like... That was in was your able, back pocket. Because yeah, he said, the, good, the, bad the, bad news, is, the bad news is so-and-so yeah. dropped out. The good news is that you know, Netflix is not pulling the plug. Because that's exactly what I thought. Right. That's why he shut the door. I was like, he shut the door because they're pulling the plug. Because I'm not going to be able to make this movie because we don't have it. But that's not what happened. So instead, we had this great casting director named Jeannie McCarthy who went 100 miles an hour and auditioned every person that was between the ages of 20 and 29 um, in New York and Los Angeles. Yeah, and it was very, very competitive. Obviously, the part's a great part, and everyone was fine for it, including some fairly famous actors. And, uh, and we then, after you know, a couple of weeks, that you know, there was this person was available, and this person gave a good reading and stuff like that, um, Kaylee came. Well, she. The, and all those other actors were really interesting and really good, but they weren't perfect. And then I said to Jeannie McCarthy, isn't there a theater actress under a rock somewhere? I mean, this is New York. Isn't there some like great actress like in a basement theater in some place in the Lower East Side and she's <laughs> acting her heart out? And so um, I got an email from Jeannie said, I think I found some girl under a rock. 
and it was her. But she wasn't under a rock because she was coming back from London. It was much fancier than a rock. She was coming back from doing a Mark Rylands play in London, yes. which is like super fancy. <laughs> but the fanciness was part of the, the fear upon getting back. I had been reading, I had been, you know, putting myself on tape as you do, trying to get the next gig while I was in London. And I was reading uh, every action movie that I knew, A, the really namey people would be getting and I didn't want anyway. And then I was reading just script after script of horribly written young women. Just floods of can I have the car keys and um, so-and-so's girlfriend that appears and changes his life. And I just <laughs> was getting to a really dark place upon returning from London <laughs> um, and read this script and thought, that's a long shot. But it seems, I, I think I said to my significant other, it seems like they might be in a tight spot because they're filming in two and a half weeks. <laughs> So something must have gone awry. And um, at that time, I had solved somebody else's like casting conundrum in a more recent way. And he said, well, that's fine, you're the closer. And I was like, what? And he was like, when people have an issue, you come in and problem solve, that's your, that's your skill set. So I was like, yes, that's, that's I'm fixing it. I'm gonna solve the problem. They clearly have a problem. <laughs> um, because I could not believe that not every person in, in New York City, in LA, in the world was not trying to get this part. Well, they were. And they were. I didn't know that part, thank God, because if I had heard 80 to 100 other people, I would have been... We read 150 people. Is that true? I, yeah. I keep saying... I've been saying 80, because I... No, it was 150. I remember sending Netflix these pages and pages and pages of names. Finders uh, of women? <laughs> I'm sorry. But also... You say finder binders of women? Binders of women. That's Mitt really Romney. old. It's the really Mitt old. Romney. Good reference. Um, keep it alive. 2012, Alexa. I know, I'm sorry about that. Uh, you were four. But that's also why casting directors should have a damn Oscar category, because can you imagine reading 150 people in two, in like less than a week? That is an insane amount of work. Sorry. <laughs> I get so angry when, I've, when I t we talk about the fact that there's no... There's like not an appropriate appreciation, appreciation of the, yeah. the casting directors. That conversation is something that we have every year. There should be a category, I agree. Um, one of the defining qualities of this movie and, and your script to me is how seamlessly and how organically you switch from drama to comedy. Um, I've seen this movie twice and both times I found myself crying and then laughing and going back to crying. So. What is it like for you to kind of trying to keep that balance in check? And I think, Kayla, this is a question for you too. Um, doing your comedic timing and then your, your kind of stretching your dramatic muscles. How, how is that process for both of you guys? Um, well, I think that I never think of them as separate, um, you know, it's not like I'm, braiding together the comedy and then I do some drama over here and then I dip into the, you know, and I do, I always feel like, in fact, you know, one of the things that draws me to material is the, the human folly that is part of it. So 
and even though it's a subject matter that's you know heart wrenching for people or or whatever, it's the the fact that those two feelings can coexist in this because it pushes. It's a very extreme situation that the people are in, and it pushes them to behave in ways that are not proper. It pushes them to say things to each other that you wouldn't say if you were in an equilibrium place. And that's what I'm attracted to, I, that, that, that the situation pushes them emotionally in ways that makes them act in a much more flayed way, an uncivilized kind of way. Um, inappropriate in an in what would be considered inappropriate inappropriate in a certain sort of way the way you're talking to your right. spouse or, or or whatever so anyway that's um uh, so, so i don't know how do you so anyway and i like actors that can straddle both things i always say that there's like a shimmer in between comedy and drama that there's this little place that's kind of going like this it's like if, you know, and, and that's where I really love, that's what I love, and it's what I'm always kind of searching for, mm -hmm. and I like actors that can do that, and Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn right. are those kind of people that can straddle it, and so is this one. Well, I think that that's, I think that it's the same thing for me as an actor. I mean, they feel like the same muscle. They don't feel like different skill sets to me, um, and I don't approach characters differently if it's a comedy versus a drama. It feels more like a dimmer switch, like you just have to, you know, pull back a little bit or commit a little bit. I think you have to commit a little bit more to comedy, actually. I think you have to be like very willing to make an ass out of yourself, which I think is why Paul and Catherine and I are so good at it. Um, <laughs> I, but there is like a sort of vulnerability that you have to be willing to have to do comedy, and I think the reason that this script is so magical is because these humans are, are like, you're meeting them at a place where they are so vulnerable and so, like, their emotions are so close to the surface. So all of these fights, I think that's the thing that drew me in the most, is I found the fights in the scene between the two of them they're not even scenes I'm in, but I was reading it and I went, this is one of the most romantic movies I've ever read in my entire life. Because this is what people want to see about a couple. This is, I, I don't really care how they got to, you know, to happily ever after, because that's not so much the interesting part. It's what happens in between, there's no such thing as that. So I'm really interested in the reality of characters and um, and what makes them tick. And I was reading the scene of them fighting on the street and I thought, oh my God, that's romantic. And I probably had just gotten in a fight with my significant other at some point in time recently and, and thought, why is nobody making, why is nobody making romantic movies like this? I found it to be like hugely epic as well. It felt to me like it wasn't held by one genre, and that's what I'm interested in making. So, what was the dynamic like between the three of you, you, Paul Giamatti, and Catherine Hahn, getting prepped for the movie, and then while can I say one thing that was kind of interesting of about it on a, like a meta level? Because Kaylee was less experienced than Paul and Catherine. There was something built into the fact that she was this sort of newcomer actress working with these veteran actors 
that almost matched the story of the movie. In other words, she looked up to them. Right. She was sort of, you know, she has this kind of romantic, in the story, a romantic relationship with these, you know, Uncle Cool and, you know, Aunt Rachel. They're her, what she says, you're my art, you're my art mom and you're my art dad. And in a way, it sort of felt like that in a certain, you know. Yeah. You know, no, real, in real life, it felt that way. It did, and I was—I saw their chemistry, and so I was immediately nervous because they seemed like they had known each other for 20 years, and they seemed immediately like a married couple. And I realized that this was sort of like a gonzo concept to put me in, like that it was this relationship was becoming three pronged, and that that could really weird people out, and that the chemistry had to be so right. I was acutely aware of that. Um, and acutely aware of my luck being seated opposite those two people and looking at their faces. Um, so that was intimidating, but for about 10 seconds because Catherine and Paul are egoless and, and incredibly kind and giving performers who were interested in what I had to say. They wanted to listen to me. And there was that connectedness there. There was nobody, you know, leaving the set and having their stand and do anything. It was real, like these real lovely humans who just were having a conversation with each other. Mm -hmm. So I, people ask if it was like difficult or what it was like, but it just felt so easy that I came away knowing that I was spoiled because I'm gonna encounter many actors that don't work that way and I, don't understand how you get a good performance if you're not fully connected to the person sitting in front of you, and I can't imagine being more connected than I was to them. I mean, it comes across as a very real, very believable relationship, even, even though it's a very complicated situation, a complicated makeshift family situation that we're not used to, but that believability is also um, supported by the New Yorkness of this movie. It's, it's a real slice of New York, and on screen you can maybe confuse it by thinking that it looks easy, but everything is just so precise, so detailed, that it must not have been easy to dress up that apartment, to dress up you guys. I always so find that so amazing that even a New York director makes a movie in New York and then it still doesn't feel right. I don't know why it's so that is still a problem. I don't know what it is. Anyway, the socioeconomic reality of the, these characters that are supposed to be um, East Village uh, couple that were middle-aged and had living in a rent-stabilized apartment, that's the only way they're sort of holding on to their little foothold, like by their fingernails, holding on to Manhattan. And um, all of that stuff was very important because it, it's these kind of characters were born out of the soil of being these kind of uh, people that moved into the East Village in that moment and that are sort of outgrowing the neighborhood and that they find themselves, they're artists, uh, that they find themselves having delayed a decision to try to have kids and then mm -hmm. suddenly there they are. So all of those things were really important to the story, you know, that they, um, anyway, I, and I was obsessed, that's why I didn't want to shoot it in Montreal. I was like, I'm not shooting this in Montreal. I'm well, not we know make it. in New York, you can't fake New York City. But you can't fake New York City, no. but even sometimes when you shoot in New York, it doesn't feel like really, it doesn't match something. 
and it's it you often it has to do to me with the socioeconomics. Like right. the apartments are too big, they're too clean. Everything's they, shiny and Catherine and I were saying there's nothing worse than like getting to a set and turning something over and it has a price tag still on it. And you're like, mm, this is all fake. Like everything feels like those fronts and blazing saddles, how like you could just knock them over. That's how <laughs> most sets feel to an actor and to walk around this one and see that the sweaters are pilling and the carpet is has like clearly been walked over a million times uh, and the linoleum is peeling in the kitchen that's that's way more fun as an actor to act in. It really in. was like Pee Wee's Playhouse and, I mean in that when once the, with this the production designer Ford Wheeler I mean the language that we kept using with the costume designer and the production designer and even the, the actors was like, oh, this is a very lived in okay. feeling. This movie has to feel, and that apartment um, had to feel like layers of life that the care, just being inside the apartment gives you a sense of who these people are. I was, a, I would teach at NYU graduate film school. I was saying that this room reminds me of the classroom there, but, and I see student films and you, I, and a lot of them don't have the commitment to the environment at all, and it's just totally crazy. Like, they haven't figured out that every inch of that screen is storytelling, mm -hmm. that every object, that everything in the background isn't really in the background. You're like, your eyes are constantly, you know, scanning a frame and looking for meaning. And so you, there's, you know, you, you, God is in the details. That's all I kept saying that when I was teaching that semester is God is in the details. And somebody's like, oh, that's so great. I was like, I didn't write that. I think it's Mies van der Rohe, but <laughs> I'll just take it. But it's true. So anyway, we had a, a God is in the details uh, production designer named Ford Wheeler um, who made that apartment. You know, you, you know, we spend time in the apartment, but then you show up on the set and that's, there was like 11, half the movie was shot there, 11 days or 12 days. Um, and we did that all, that was the first thing we did, which was kind of great because it was this little incubator for the, our theater company of the three of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, of the three of them. They were just... Uh, you were part of our theater well, company, part of Tamara. Theater company. Okay. But it was such a tight little space and we were working in a you know, single location, which was kind of great to get our speed up. I mean, for them to really figure out who they were as actors with each other and characters. But anyway, when we arrived, the day on, you know, on the set, I had, I'd been to the apartment to shot list and, you know, but it hadn't been totally dressed. But when we showed up on the day, the first day of principal photography and it was dressed, it was like all those objects are like stuff that the actors get to play with. Well, and, and a lot of them came from your apartment. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. And no, and Ford Wheeler's apartment. No, Ford had so, I mean, he took so much of his own stuff. I mean, there, you know, we ran out of books and I started bringing in books from my apartment. Um, but there was a lot of like objects that really were lived in, including like a lot of art from, from his house. I mean, just, it just felt like the place that these people would be, which seems so simple and obvious. Like, of course, that's your job. But for some reason, I see movies that are supposed to take place in New York all the time, and the the, the fabric of that neighborhood isn't right. That and that specificity definitely doesn't exist in a lot of movies. Well, the, you yeah. know, the process Every of making restaurant. a movie is taking something that's real, which is a story, um, and then putting it through this like machinery of artifice. You know, where you you this takes place in this room, but we're not going to shoot in this room because 
whatever, you live in this room. So now we're going to take that place, we're going to do that in this location. We can't use that location because, you know, the permits aren't there and it's a hot zone in New York. And so instead we're, we're going to use that side of that room for that location. And, but you know what, if you want to pull the camera back, we can't, you know, there's not enough room. So we need a bigger room now. And then suddenly, because of the convenience of shooting, you start putting yourself in lose. You could easily yeah, yeah, lose. You lose the sense. You get the camera into into a position that you're looking at a room that's supposed to be a small room, and it looks like a small room. But just by virtue of the distance between the lens and the and the and the back wall, you feel that it's not a small room anymore. And and part of restoring that authenticity is to inconvenience the filmmaking process. And it yeah. takes real dedication. That's a very good word, because I remember I had a production designer use, when, I can't remember what the detail was, but it had something to do with like uh, putting it, like where this tree was in terms of this house and where the shot was gonna be. And then she said, that's just too convenient, that, that that's where the tree is. And I was like, oh my God, that's so right. That there should be, that it was too convenient, it was too easy for the storytelling to have the dumb tree right in the middle of the frame for the actor to come out from behind or whatever it was. I can't remember the detail, but it was just such a great piece of language to define what happens, you know, when you're, you're not paying attention. You could do something that, because it's easier, because it's convenient, but that's not honest. That's not as good as it would be if you did mm -hmm. the real version of that. And yeah, yeah even, even something as simple as like, you know, if you want to shoot a scene in a, in a taxi cab, you have to, first of all, not use a real taxi cab because you can't. You have to use a picture car that comes from a picture car company, have an actor who's not a taxi cab driver, but who's, a, you know, an actor who's pretending to be a taxi cab driver. And then now you have to start re kind of like smutching up the, you know, the, the, the back of it. And like, what does a taxi cab really look like? And does it look like the inside of this taxi cab? And, and you're trying to try to recreate something that, that we as like New Yorkers experience on a daily basis. Right. You know, that's really hard. But it's true. You're, that's exactly what happens. The artifice just starts spilling in and then you have to get it back to real yeah you have to bring it back to real and it's very hard to like it's easy to like lose your way i guess that's what must be happening when you see those movies and also people want things that are pretty instead of honest in, like in the city pretty you know, somebody, is convenient yeah well yeah pretty is convenient or you know they come out of a subway and they show up and you're like what why would that is not, not just the geography and obviously we're New Yorkers so we pay attention to that sort of stuff but I feel like you can feel it and so I know I'm obsessed with it and every restaurant in the script was written I mean every there's like three restaurants and they were all neighborhood restaurants where these people would go if they live there and I wrote them into the script and we got them and our locations guy was like I've never met a director that was so like if I went to every restaurant, talked to every major deed, then talked to the owner of the restaurant that made like, I was like making deals with all the restaurants because I really didn't want to just have some, you know, random restaurant that just happens to be convenient and easier and maybe it's a little cheaper or it's closer to this other location that we need to shoot on that day. It's, it was very inconvenient, but we ended up using all those spaces and it just feels real. And to, to your earlier point about honesty, I really appreciate that your food scenes, in your food scenes, people are actually eating the food as opposed to pushing it around and playing with it. That's a huge I don't pet peeve of me. Stop eating in this movie. <laughs> she I eats can, so much. I don't stop. 
But it is a huge pet peeve of mine, mine when too. people just push their food around a plate in a, like there's nothing that annoys me more as an actor than seeing that. And I had brought up to Catherine, there's a scene in the first season of Transparent where they're eating ribs. And it's one of the most like beautiful scenes because every person at the table is like gnawing on bones and they have sauce on their <laughs> hands and it's it just feels it feels like I remember it still to this day because like barbecue or something. Yeah, they're eating ribs and they're just going to town. And I I was like, that's enjoyable to watch. Like watching someone push their food around a plate and pretend to have a conversation is not fun to watch. But there's definitely a lot of that pasta of, scene. Yeah, Jesus! Lot, oh my God! You had to shovel a lot of pasta. Yeah. Um, before we turn it over to the audience, I have one, one last question about not the apartment but other locations. A lot of it is in clinics and fertility centers. Were there actual locations? Did you have any trouble getting them involved since it's oh such God. a private? We when we shot in a fertility clinic, and we the entire. Cr for the, you know, there's an actual operation room mm -hmm. where the procedures are done, and we, as a crew, it was a sterile place. We had to sterile, we had to like... Didn't you scrub in? We had to scrub in, and we had to wash all our camera equipment before we went in, and we had to wear, you know, like hazmat suits so we wouldn't contaminate this room where we shot. There was also the hum of the air conditioner the right. whole time, which yeah. sound probably was not No, sound wasn't about. happy because they have embryos in a refrigerator that we couldn't shut off. Usually you shut off all the, you know, air, con you know, whatever vents. But we couldn't harm embryos in the making of this film no, about no. them no. trying to get pregnant. That would be really horrible. No embryos horrible. were harmed in the making of this film. <laughs> uh, let's turn it over to you guys. Yes. I loved your movie. I love your script, and I want to tell everyone here they should see it on a big screen. Um, and I wanted to ask two questions. One is about the Molly Shannon character, because there's three women that, the men have their relationships, the couple has their relationship, but Molly Shannon's character, which she played so well, please explain a little bit about her. The technical question is, when you make a film for Netflix, and it's going to be seen on smaller screens. How does that affect you? And from a technical point of view, what does that change in the crafting of the film? Well, okay, so the, the Netflix question first. Um, I did not, you know, Fassbender made movies for television and Bergman made films for television. I don't think that because they were making movies that were on the small screen that they we're not doing wide shots, for instance. You know, Fanny and Alexander was made for television, and uh, I, mean, I guess Marriage of Maria Braun, I'm not sure. I think it is, because it's in parts. So anyway, I did not, it did not affect the shooting strategy. To me, it's a movie, and it's been shown in theaters, and it is having this, you know, its own little theatrical release. It's not as, you know, it's not the old-fashioned way. Um, so it did not affect the photographically our way of shooting the film at all. Um, the Molly Shannon part, well, I was so excited to get Molly Shannon, and she was the only person that I went after for that part. That's the only person that I, once I locked in, I was worried about the part because a friend of mine who's actually a filmmaker herself, she read the script, she said, I love the script, and she says, oh, and I love that sister-in-law, she's such a fun bitch. And I was like, oh no. 
what if she's just like a bitch? And what if she doesn't have dimension? And I was like, I really need somebody who can, you know, she's complicated. And that she, that she doesn't come off just like a tart, like, you know, she's, she's prickly. And um, once I thought of Molly Shannon, I knew that that, whatever those, that prickliness would be tempered with a kind of humanity that would help. And uh, I, I just think she's so great in it. And uh, anyway, I had to pursue her like a good lunatic. I mean, that was crazy. Was and everybody was like, give it up. It's not gonna happen. Should I tell that story? It's a really good story about producing. Yeah. And also not listening to anybody. It's a really good story. She represented patriarchy and her husband did not. Wait, she what, the patriarchy? Patriarchy, I mean, in terms of ownership. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, that scene in the basement where she's saying, when they're having the fight, and she says, look, Mom, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. It's so interesting because it's the language of sort of pro-choice language. What, but I what? always saw right. that as her... I never saw that as her trying to control my body, interestingly enough. I always saw it as her trying to keep me close to her, which... I don't, you know, I don't think Sadie saw it that way. But when I read it, I thought, oh, like this is a woman who's about to lose her other daughter as well, and she she's at a place in her life where she doesn't know what she's going to do next. Much like myself and Catherine's characters in this. She's like on the, you know, she's in menopause. She's Each, on an island. She's alone. Like she feels just even empty though nest she's moment. yeah, and like. She can't connect with me, and but also if I do his, this. But also, it's your daughter's body. You don't yeah. want your daughter injecting hormones into her body. I mean, I felt like each person's point of view in the story, I really believe, from their point of view, each opinion about this arrangement, this donor egg arrangement, that that, that was honest. Like, that she doesn't want her daughter injecting herself there with drugs. There would, of drugs. course, be somebody to say, that is a ludicrous idea. What are you doing? Why are you going to put yourself through that? There's, and it's echoed throughout the movie with people saying, why don't they, you know, like, aren't there these things? People make it seem like it's really an easy road to navigate. Why don't you just adopt? Or why don't they just do this? And people like to set up a lot of rules and restrictions about what other people can do. Yeah, so anyway, I think that Molly, you know, I feel like there's three, it's like a triptych of three women. There's like, the, and each character, it's almost like the evolution of a biological, you know, impact, like, you know, there's the fertile 25 year old fecund, um, there's, the, there's the Catherine Hahn character who's sort of the end of her fertility, I'd like at that you know, bitter end, possibly, and then there's this menopause person, and it's like all of those biological reproductive moments in their lives are somehow informing their behavior within the context of the story. And I'm glad you brought her up. I, I never thought of her character, funny enough, as you know a, a villain. Villain is maybe not the best word, but I always sympathize with her concerns if they were valid, and I like that there were three generations of different women from different social and economic realities. I think the script also had that great dimension watching it as a woman. I could actually just like you see where they're all coming from. Right. So, yes. I just wanted to first say that I really loved it. Um, and I also just wanted to say that Kaylee, like you're amazing. It's very kind of you to say. Um, like I was there for the first screening um, when you guys were all there for a Q and A. 
and like when you're just up on the balcony and you're just soaking it in like you just seemed really happy and you just you really deserved it because it was a great performance Thank you. That's okay. I was very happy. I also was not fully prepared for the light that they put on you. And so when it came up, me and Catherine were like, what's happening? And then someone showed us pictures of it. And like, it, there's one of them where she's grabbing my face. And like, none of them were looking the same way. We're just all sort of like in mania. Um, my question is, as someone who's writing their first spec script, I was wondering, as a writer, what you, as a writer and a producer, what do you think is the hardest part about getting your work out there? Well, I think the hardest thing, period, is writing. Just the act of writing is the commitment and the, um, just the it, it, patience and intensity and like, I don't know the ritual of it. I don't know what your writing thing is, style is in terms of, but the daily practice, I guess that's the best way of putting it, the daily practice of writing is very, is like, I don't know, just the key to life. You have to show up at the desk. It's a, um, so the hardest part, I mean, so that's the hardest part. And also, and producing a script that you're proud of, that's the hardest part. Um, and then there's this whole other thing, which is leaving your little room and trying to you know, get it out there in the world. I'm probably not the best person to talk about that part I mean, because now I'm old and I know people that are, you know, I have a little community of people that I would be like, oh, maybe you should look at this. So I don't have to do it so nakedly. Like the very first time is so naked. You're like, I don't know. You don't know who to trust. That stuff is really hard, but maybe he can talk about that part. Well, it, like in terms of getting work out there, I think the hardest thing is just having a script because it's, there's a lot of scripts out there and it's very hard to get it through all the different layers of readers and agencies and everything and and you know what I, it's it's it'll be kind of weird being on this panel and talking you know, approaching it this way but there's like an element where I, I I think the best way to get a script out there is to make a movie you know and that way you have the the you know you have the movie that can speak to itself and obviously making a movie is not an easy thing. But the best way to make a movie is to just find ways to get them made at any level and at any, in, in any way possible, you know, which can actually be a lot cheaper than it feels like. You know, the, the, you know, making a movie can be your, on your iPhone and you can edit it on your iPhone and you can then you know, put it up on YouTube and then you've made a movie and you can start getting stuff done that way and that way you, you, you don't, you don't have, like not everything has to be perfect. And not everything, has, especially when you're trying to find your voice and you're trying to find your audience and you're trying to find collaborators. And the, the, the best way to find collaborators is just start doing something and see how, you know, how, how it can come together. And I don't think, you know, I think like it's a, you know, and why I say it's a weird thing on this panel because obviously, you know, Tamara worked for years and years making a movie that, is, that don't, don't trust me, trust the New York Times, is quote unquote perfect. You know, and I think that, that that's like a luxury that you can have when there is like a certain, you know, you have a certain amount of momentum behind you and you don't, you know, you're, and, and you've broken through to a certain degree. But, but in terms of trying to break through, I think going out there and finding a way to just get things made and make mistakes and make things that aren't, that, 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 
that, that don't take five years will, will, will help you develop yourself as a writer, will help your work get seen by other people, will help you create a community of people that you can make movies with, will create your future collaborators, and I think that method is, is undervalued now uh, because people don't like to make mistakes. Hi, um, I really loved the movie too, and um, the actors were, I mean, I, I loved so much of it, so many different aspects of it, um, and I was wondering, um, I also thought it was beautifully photographed, and I was particularly aware of your <laughs> eyes at certain times, which were I just... I know exactly what chart yeah, you're thinking of. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it was so related to your character. And, um, so I was wondering what, what you shot on. And well, we shot on a, we shot on a very cam. Um, so we, it wasn't shot on film. We, I, the cinematographer, I think, is amazing. And his name is Christos Vudoris. Um, and we had a very, like, a great, I just thought it was, a, it was just a perfect collaboration in terms of the, our sensibilities mushing. Um, it's he does his own uh, cam I always think it's he does like his own camera work I mean yeah, he's, he's like a, the he's truest a, sense of of like his eyes being on it yeah you know so when, when you make a movie there's in the union sense of making the movie you hire a camera operator and then there's the cinematographer so the Euro, uh, Euro, he's European Europeans operate their own cameras a lot most of the time so um there's something very specific about what that feels like when the DP, the cinematographer, is handling the camera himself because he's in the soup with us. With the, he's not back here telling somebody else what to do. It becomes very removed. Anyway, there was something very immediate about that. So we, but we shot both handheld and on sticks and you know dolly. Um, that was part of our collaboration from the beginning that we were going to mix those two styles. Um, that we were going to shoot a lot of single takes, single kind of master takes uh, without standard coverage in many cases. Um, and, you know, he is, has a really gifted eye. As a, his composition sense is amazing. Like his, what? He was very connected to the actors. Very connected to the yeah. actors. And also weird. He's like weird. I don't know. I've used this example a couple of times you'll say, okay, so we're gonna set up on Paul's single here. Then you turn around, and this is, for example, Paul is lying in bed, and th there's music thumping upstairs, and it's before he has that big fight with Catherine about, you know, I'm kinda glad that it didn't work, and are we ever gonna have sex again, and that whole big scene in the bed. So, it's a, so I'm like, okay, so we're gonna start here, Paul's gonna be lying down, he's gonna be staring at the ceiling, then I turn around, then I look, and Christos has framed it, so Paul's kind of like falling out of the bottom of the frame, instead of, you know, symmetry, which is what normal people do. They think, oh, it's just symmetrical and it's gonna be right on, it's gonna be right in. He is so expressive, compositional. And I just turned around and I was like, I never, I mean, that is so beautiful. And so he has this great, and it's, what, it's how I found him. Just, I could see just a couple of movies. He shot one Yorgos Lanthimos movie, which is like one of the early non-famous ones, um, called Alps. He shot a movie called Love is Strange by, um, um, I love that movie. And it's very simple and minimalist. Ira. Ira Sachs, thank you. My brain just went like Ira. Um, Ira Sachs. And what attracted me to that was a very 
he had a very interesting sense of composition. It's super minimalist movie, very low budget New York movie, but I was like, there's something about this guy. Because I had a list of, you know, all the great cinematographers, none of which would ever do my movie. And then on that list, there was a name um, that I didn't recognize. And then I started looking at his work. And then I was like, this guy's interesting. And he was, you know, a pain. He was in Madrid. He wasn't like in New York, which was a whole thing that wasn't, originally we we're gonna use a, you know, New York DP. Um, and the, the one New York DP that I had a crush on was unavailable. So <laughs> then we started looking and we found this guy and he's really, really gifted and uh, mostly does commercials and stuff. He's very picky and doesn't do a lot of features, um, but I'm super grateful that he did. And the other thing is that he had almost like, I was like, oh, I have like almost like a, a vaudevillian side and he has this poetic European side. So sometimes, do you remember, like when Catherine is like marching with her ass, you know, that scene where Catherine marches past and like bends over and scrubs. So I remember we were doing that and then Christos is like, I think, isn't this just too, much, it's, it's too, and I was like, okay, we'll do it the European version. So then we did it, like, we'll do a second take that's maybe a little less in your face, and then I was like, no, this is so much better. But anyway, we had a kind of hilarious, a hilarious kind of uh, give and take with regards to a kind of more blunt, almost whatever I am, American, blunt American, and this sort of delicate, poetic European sensibility, and something, I feel like that's in there somewhere. So, continuing on that um, cinematography question, can we talk about the film's last shot? Would that be giving a spoiler to people who haven't seen it? Uh, working both with your actors and, and your DP, kind of getting out a story from a performance that's silent. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, written in the script, although in the script nobody said that it's a single shot. I mean, it could have been coverage. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wanted it to not have any cuts once we arrived in that two shot. Um, I think we did a tighter one that didn't feel as good, but that size frame, that kind of medium um, frame felt like the right scale for that. And um, we ran it for a couple of, I don't know, it's like a three minute shot or a two minute shot or something. And I knew that I wanted the titles to start to roll, and uh, yeah, they were, I don't know how many, I, we were at the at Lincoln Center and I said, I can't remember how many takes we did, I think we did, th and then Brian, my editor was in the audience and he went, three! <laughs> so we did three takes of it, and uh, um, yeah, it's amazing that, you know, gesture versus dialogue, a movie that's so heavily, there's so much dialogue and I'm such a dialogue, you know, ladling on the dialogue and then it's so pulled back there. Right. Um, and also everything that happens in that whole sequence is just pretty much physical. It's him getting up and going to the other side of the booth and sitting next to her, that it's all just about bodies and space and then that sustained hold on the two of them waiting. Right. Any other questions? Yes? You? Please wait for the mic. I haven't seen the movie, but I'm looking forward to it. And I love The Savages, which was, you know, like life. Funny, sad, it was great. 
Um, I just wanted to say I appreciate the discussion on sort of this minutia of eating and the details, but I always assumed the eating was because of continuity. It's just like the cigarette or drinking that... Oh, you mean that people don't do it? That, that, that they do it sort of weird and stylized? That style they're sort of cautious that they're about to eat something or for continuity reasons. And then also, I saw a movie recently, I don't know what it was, and I was, it was like, that is like such a real home or apartment because the bed's always made in these or the house is it's not always so clean but it just doesn't no it's very interesting we really had to spend a lot of time me it's you know a cinematographer and a and a director it's like a marriage it's a very you know and you're just we're i just felt like we spent so much time messing up the set mm -hmm. and not having it look neat and just there's this thing that happens that you have to go against the I was like, we just like find glasses of half drunk milk and put right. it down. Like just the detritus around an apartment and what it looked like a shoe right. and a, and we were very, I mean, that's what my apartment looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's weird. You know, piles of clothes that, you know, it's, you don't want your apartment to look like that. <laughs> when guests come, you pretend it doesn't look like that, but you know, there are no guests in the movie, that's their life. And so it's what really what lived in spaces look like. I was gonna say at the same time though, some of that stuff you don't want it to get in the way of the storytelling where, I mean, obviously, you know, there's, I hate when someone goes to a restaurant, they order a cup of coffee to, and then they leave and they don't touch the coffee or no, you know, sometimes- it's weird details- They briefing up the phone bumped. call and it's like, it you know, feels, I can't find a pen half the time to write. I mean- It feels part of the storytelling to me and like mm -hmm. those things, it shouldn't ever be easy to get the, to tell the story in a scene like that. Like, I love little obstacles as an actor. I love those sort of challenges or like an activity because it turns off that part of your actor brain that wants to smooth everything out and make it perfect. And it allows you to just be human in your delivery. I think stuff like that is wildly helpful um, because it, it challenges you and it breaks up the sentence in a way that is human and real. So. When those things aren't there, that's actually what scares me the most, is like just standing there having to say the words. Nobody does that. Someone is doing something almost always. And if they've ordered that cup of coffee, there's a reason why they need it. They ordered it because they need something to do. It's, such a, it's a very interesting thing about business, giving actors business and having that be part of your idea of staging. I mean, not in a fake way. It's specificity, it's specific though. business, but it's real, you know, the, if, you know, an actor standing completely still and delivering dialogue to someone else is very different than when they're, you know, running down the street and having the same conversation. Like, the physicality of what's happening is, it, you know, it brings life. And, and you can, when you watch student films, that's a, something you notice a lot. Like, that they don't have that they don't understand that yet. And there's a lot of like stiff people delivering lines and not and standing in space in a way that feels just wrong and they haven't. Yeah, but it's also again, I, I, one of my like pet annoyances is when I watch on TV, oh. like, like people, people doing business and then someone comes in and says, 
you know, someone's like, whatever, measuring, the carpenter is measuring something, and someone comes in and says, you know, your mother's been kidnapped, and he's like, well, you know, and, <laughs> and then, and I, I feel like people don't act well, like that. People, well, people don't continue doing that stuff. Well, there's bad, and there's also cheeseball television business where everybody's walking down the hall and having that conversation yeah. in the office, and they're always walking and talking in this kind of false way, because they're like, let's get people moving, and... You know, there's fake business. Yeah, there's about there's like a real like observance of like to get it right, you have yes. to like see how people live and yeah. be aware of like what. But that's do. and it also it's what you do in the script too. You're thinking about that, especially if you're a writer director. You also have you're to be staging. writing not. You also have to be writing three dimensional humans all the time, so that with the business that you're giving them doesn't feel fake. Because that's one of the first ways as an actor that I can see in a script that this person just added these characters to support another person's story or to, you know, just like bolster whatever they're trying. They're like, oh, this person is a plot device. Humans are not plot devices. Mm -hmm. So if you're building a story like that, then every piece of business you give that person is fake because they're not a person. And, and that humanness and absence of fakeness, I thought was really, really evident in the clothes, in the hair as well. I, I love one of your lines in the movie. Do, do you say something like, we are a perfect picture of assholes, you know, with big hairs and bulky sweaters. But that, that all felt really real to me. And one of my pet peeves is I can't stand um, in movies when every woman has perfectly curled hair and just like so tucked in and belts and everything. a great costume designer it, too. It, it's, it's very unnoticeable costume work, but when you, when you look closely, there's a lot of detail in there too. I did, a, I, I did a Western for Netflix and I had to beg them to make me dirtier. Like I was like, please. I was like, my fingernails are too clean. I'm too clean. Make me dirty. Like make me look like I have sand in my teeth. That's always a thing for me too. Like, I don't really give a shit if I look pretty on camera at all. I think as evidenced by that angle of me crying in the hospital that I don't care about that <laughs> because I was watching it and I was sitting there and I was thinking if I was a, if I was a different person, I would be furious at this camera angle. Because <laughs> it's like literally every chin and like the worst crying faces, but I don't trust pretty criers. I don't trust people who are afraid to get ugly. I don't trust them as actors. Right. And so the second I see that, I turn off in a movie. So this, every single thing that was happening, I was like, yeah, Catherine's hair was always like in various states of disarray, but it like seemed to match the various states of disarray that she was in. Indeed. It always felt like if she was running out the door somewhere, like she had not, she made a joke that uh, there was a hairbrush with hair in it in every single room of this apartment, but <laughs> she never once brushed her hair from looking at <laughs> that character. <laughs> The hairbrush is there as a suggestion. There's like multiple <laughs> hairbrushes with someone's hair in them, but it was not Catherine Hans. How are we doing in time? Okay. Let's let's take one question here. I I, I didn't see the film yet, but I'm curious about. I'm a filmmaker. I'm curious about your editing process. Oh, I've worked with a great editor. Um, his name is Brian Cates, and it's our second film together. And uh, 
I don't know. I'm not. A, I don't really like assemblies. I don't know. That's like the first thing. They're pretty horrifying. You know, that's the first time that the um, editor puts the film together and you weren't there selecting all of your takes necessarily. It's a really sickening thing to witness when you kind of finally get off the set and you sit down and you watch your movie assembled without your eyeballs. Um, and anyway, it's the most humble. They say, they say the, 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 that, I think it's uh, oh, yeah. Coppola who said, wasn't it Coppola yeah, who said? Something about that the movie will never be as good as the dailies or as bad as the assembly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the assembly is pretty horrible. And it's also so humbling. And it's like the first thing that happens when you get there. And you're just like, oh my god, that's what we made? That's what was going on? So, uh, you know, I'm a freak. I like to sit there every second. And um, not all directors do. Some people, yeah, some people give notes and leave and go out and then come back. But I sit there because the, the sort of meditation of sitting there and watching the footage flying by, I feel like I get ideas and it, I don't know, I have to go under the spell of the movie and I sit there every day with him all day and then I, we leave at night. So I'm, I know a lot of directors like that. I mean, but I also know the ones that give notes and leave and do other things. But, um, so I'm one of the annoying ones that sit there all day. Any other questions? Um, oh, there you go. I have a question, I guess. So, like, I just saw it at the IFC. You were at the IFC? Well, I was, yeah, I was there Saturday night. Oh, okay, because I just did a Q&A there, but yeah. that was Sunday. I'm yeah. glad you saw it there. Yeah, but then I'm confused. So, it's playing on Netflix as a full movie, or is it? Yeah, no, Netflix, it's a simultaneous, it's at theaters only for, I don't know, a week. Um, and it's also showing on Netflix. So if you're a cinephile like yourself, you get to go out and watch it on screen, which I am Or really if you're happy. from Florida, like my family, where a movie like this would probably not make it to you, you get to see it. Right. Okay. See it on the screen. Yeah. That would be nice. But you do it really fast, because it's like... I, I find that it plays really well in a large audience because of all the details and jokes. And, and the comedy, it, yeah. And I, the comedy. It builds a community. It's one of those movies that kind of builds a community as you're watching it around you. Maybe they'll um, just invite lots of people over when they watch it on Netflix. We can say, please. <laughs> no, it's, it's, all, it's hard, especially when you make something that has comedy in it because comedy is so contagious. And when you're sitting around with others, mm -hmm. the, it just builds it. and. It's a very specific feeling, and so, you know, how does it play when it's, you're sitting by yourself and watching it? I don't, you know, it's like, ah. We have time for one final question. All right, I pick you again. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I just was wondering, it just popped into my head, was there anything in particular that inspired the running gag of an individual testicle. Oh. Oh. Uh -oh. That would be one way of ending the conversation. <laughs> there was a little truth in that one. <laughs> so this, this, this is some, quite a note to end the conversation on. <laughs> a little truth, let's, let's not dig that. But the idea that it was something that was repeated was like because this 
you know, there, I remember scribbling down a note to myself, oh my God, it's like a bi biological battle of the sexes, that there's this kind of blameathon occurring. And so that that became, you know, because when men and women go through this, you know, uh, there is, the assumption is that it's the woman's problem because it's her old eggs or whatever. Catherine talks about, she says that, it's my old eggs and then there we were. And um, that, that there's this kind of, what is it? It's self, you know, it's like passive aggressive. I mean, it's like she's saying because she, but there's this kind of, there's a lot of passive aggressive anxiety, you know, stuff going on. There's a lot of subtext. And so she's spitting this out and kind of him feeling like she's saying it so much. Like, God, why do you have to say it so much that I have one testicle? Like, what are you, you know, they're under, <laughs> so there is that. There's that, that's the real reason that it's being used and that she keeps kind of, and it's an, I don't even know how conscious she is, you know, that, but that she keeps saying it and he's like, enough already with the one, I mean, she's like, they're doctors, they need to know, I know, but like she's almost like, <laughs> because she's mad that it's not working and she doesn't want to be the only one that's to blame. And that's really, that's the Although real I, I found it so lovely that when he was put under pressure at that breakfast scene, that he comes out with it. No, then he, it's he become, it, that's it's part, become, like, that it's like, it's, he's so used to that being spewed out by his wife that it's like contagious. And he's like, well, you know I only have one testicle. And then he's like, oh my God, why did I? It's like, she's infected him. Well, I, saw, I saw that as like, they were like a team again and they were unified. And so he was fine talking about his But I think that, but then even Catherine is like, why would you start with that? That's not a good, that's not a good way to start a conversation. You know, that they're just bumbling and they don't know how to, they don't know how to ask these questions because who the hell knows how to ask somebody for their eggs and not for breakfast, you know, the other kind. So that's, that's sort of what I was saying, that it pushes them to, to, to talk about things or to engage with something that isn't natural, that is uncomfortable, that makes you act strange because, you, you know, the scene where they're sitting with the burrito and they're asking her to give them her eggs is intense and right. strange and makes you have all these feelings that you wouldn't have in the normal course of life. And then you, you keep thinking that no information is private anymore. These are so normalized, so talked about often that just saying, oh, he has one testicle is just perfectly normal because they talk about it amongst themselves. Yeah, but then the movie is all about the kind of lack of, you know, something that should be so private, like Indeed, conception, yeah. and that, that they've been, you know, tossed into this public realm with mm -hmm. these very private things about themselves, that that's part of the you know, idea of the title that you have to sit in a waiting room at a fertility clinic in a public space and everybody knows why you're there, even though it's this incredibly intimate thing and, you know, or you're having that fight out on the street or there's no, you know, everyone has an opinion about what you're doing because they do. And in that sense, I thought Private Life is a really, really generous movie, just making everybody who's battling with this whispered about problem and they feel like they're not alone in the world. Um, so that's another dimension that just reflects on the audience. I yeah, felt. and I really, and I, but, and I, I, but I don't think you have to have gone through the thing to connect to the movie because right. ultimately, you know, that's like saying you have to have robbed a bank in order mm -hmm. to appreciate Dog Day Afternoon, you know? 
Like you don't. You you're and I, that's how I always feel. Like this yeah. is like that. Right. That people that it's not an issue movie, even though there's an issue in it. But really, it's about how these people are, you know, th their behavior and how they're responding to these circumstances. Right. Um, we need to wrap it up. Sorry, we're out of time. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for coming. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>